Um, good morning. My name is Rebecca Clendenin, and um, I am, by the grace of God, a recent third-time mom, and also have a heart um, to walk with couples in the journey of expecting um, to bring life into the world. So I work with couples to prepare them physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually for childbirth. And um, funny enough, as this video suggests, the name of my childbirth practice is Mom the Hero. I think moms are awesome and mothers are my heroes. So happy Mother's Day to everyone. Um, I'd like to invite you all to join me in our time of congregational prayer to celebrate mothers. We also want to remember the mothers um, who aren't among us today. Um, mothers or grandmothers that we have lost, um, and also those among us who may have lost a child this year. And the singular flower in front of me represents um, just our effort as a, the body of Christ to remember those who have experienced loss this year. So would you join me in prayer, church? God, thank you so much for who you are. You Lord, are the giver of life, and you choose us, your creation, to carry and bring forth life. God, thank you that you would choose pregnancy and childbirth as your means to enter this world through the person of Jesus. Thank you, God, that we look to the picture of the way that you came into this world as um, just to know, God, that you, you love us and you um, can relate to us um, at every level from birth until death. Thank you, God, for our mothers. There is not a single one among us today who was not brought forth into the world without a mother. And so, God, we thank you for our mothers, be they birth mothers or stepmothers, adoptive mothers, Mothers that are living or mothers who have passed, we thank you, and we thank you for their sacrifice. This morning we celebrate those among us who have warm and close relationships with our mothers and warm and close relationships with our children. We thank you for the mothers who have raised us to know you, teaching us your word and faithfully praying for us. But we also remember this morning those who have disappointment and heartache and perhaps distance and strain in their relationships with their mothers or with their children. And we pray, God, for healing and for forgiveness and that our body, the church, would surround um, those who are hurting, God, with support and with love. And we pray, God, for forgiveness for those among us who may have experienced abuse at the hands of our own mother. For those among us who lost mothers or grandmothers this year, we, church, grieve with you and we pray, God, your comfort and your peace. God, we celebrate and thank you for those among us who have added to their families this year, either by birth or by adoption. Thank you so much for the precious gift of new life and for each of these children. And I pray as a church that we would together uh, raise and pour in and invest in the lives of Waypoint children. God, thank you. Thank you for new life. And to those who are pregnant with new life, either 
expected or by surprise, we um, anticipate with you and we pray God's protection over his creation that's growing. Likewise, we pray for those among us who are navigating the adoption process. God, would you step and would you bring to fulfillment um, a new child in the lives of those families? Remember those among us who have lost a child this year. Oh Lord, would you please use us to serve as comfort and help um, to those who are hurting? Would you please use our body to surround these families with support? And I pray for those who have experienced loss this year through miscarriage or through failed adoption or even a prodigal child who has run away. We pray, God, that you would turn sorrow into joy and be glorified. I pray for those among us who have always wanted to be a mother, but whose biology does not yield to that desire. We as a church grieve with you and comfort. We pray God's comfort for you. And to those who walk the hard path, this hard path of infertility, forgive us for when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make that harder than it is. And for those among us who are single and long to be married and mothering our own children, we mourn that life has not turned out that way for you yet, but we pray that God would give you peace and patience and would bless you with rich community and with joy and fulfillment um, in only the way that Jesus can fulfill God, we pray for the moms among us who are in the trenches of rearing little ones every day and who wear the badge of food stains and spit up and vomit. And God, we ask for your fruits of the Spirit, Lord. We cannot mother, we cannot raise children without your help, Lord. Um, we desperately need your fruits, for in our own flesh we are, um, we are lost. So we pray, Lord, for gentleness, for peace, for self-control, uh, but most of all, for love. And to those who are um, single parenting or step parenting, we walk with you um, in these complex paths, and we pray that as a church, we would know how to surround you with support. And to those among us who are uh, foster moms or mentor moms or spiritual moms, we thank God for the precious picture of the gospel that you are to us. Jesus, would you use our children, Lord? They are walking threats to our idols, our heart idols of control or comfort or productivity. Would you use them um, among the women um, in this body, God, as our best teachers? And lastly, Lord, I just lift up the women who don't know you, who don't walk in fellowship with you, who are apart from you and apart from your spirit, and we beg, O oh Lord, that you would use us, your people, to love them into the kingdom of God, um, to demonstrate your character, Lord, and that you would bring these women to know you so that the hardship and, and um, sacrifice that parenting demands would be one where they could fellowship with you, Jesus, and know the amazing fruits that you bestow on us um, when we walk with you. 
Lord, um, thank you just for this day, and we pray again for all of these groups that I named and any oversight that I may have had, Lord, forgive me. Uh, we pray that the mothers among us would feel celebrated and that we would remember our mothers and celebrate them. In your name I pray, amen. Hear the word of God from John 21. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. John 21, 9 through 25. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you wherever you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the word world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. morning, everyone. I hope you're doing well today. Today we're finishing up in our series in the book of John. And I really hope you enjoyed our time there in this book. I've loved it. It's been an incredible series that we've been diving into in our small groups as well as our sermons. 
in the end of chapter 20 in the book of John, says that these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by, by believing, you may have life in his name. That's been my prayer for you this whole series, that we are diving into this, that as you read, as you hear, as you execute these scriptures, and in so doing, you see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the hope of the world. And Jesus is the one who came and taught people about the kingdom of God. The kingdom that, that he inaugurated with his death and resurrection. A kingdom that we as believers, as, as we accept him as Lord and Savior, uh, we are a part of. That we are a people on mission. See, the book of John, John wrote this book. He says, this is eyewitness account. I want to write this so that you can understand this is who Jesus is. Believe in it and let that change your life. So it's been a good series in the book of John. We've loved being in it together. Today, we're going to dive into the last chapter of the book of John. I'm going to go really quick here. I won't go really quick, but I'll go somewhat quick. I'll keep it short because I know a lot of you guys have Mother's Day reservations at, res at, at your restaurant of choice somewhere. And if you don't have a reservation and you're just hoping to show up somewhere, God be with you. <laughs> Probably wasn't good planning on your part, but that's okay. Hey, there is grace here. Let me set the stage for where we're at here at this point. This is the end of the book of John. Jesus has already been crucified on the cross and he's resurrected. He's appeared multiple times to his disciples. In particular, Pastor Eric taught a couple weeks ago where he appeared at the boat and taught them, had them catch fish again with the disciples. It was a wonderful experience. You have these group of disciples, Peter and John being among them, and they decide to go out fishing. While out fishing, they see a stranger from shore and ask them if they caught anything. Now, if you ever fish him, if you've ever been fishing before, that's like the, we hate that question. Especially if you've never caught anything. You're like, if you caught a lot of fish, you're like, yeah, ask me that question. Look what I got. But they always ask that question when you haven't caught anything. In particular, my, I love fishing in Florida, but there were many times me and my dad would go out and we go fishing and my mom would call me like, have you guys caught anything? She never called when we caught something. Only called when we didn't catch anything. So here they are, they're, they're trying to catch fish and the stranger yells out, have you caught anything? This is the worst thing that a, a guy can do when they're fishing, out fishing. First of all, he says, children. That's actually the word to use. He says, children, have you caught anything? That's something that most grown men don't hear, but actually, it's actually a term of endearment. There's a term of endearment. He says, hey, my friends, my boys, my kids, have you caught anything? But then here's the worst thing. After you've never, you haven't caught anything all night, this is what every fisherman doesn't want to hear. He says, have you tried the other side? <laughs> Seriously. Like, it's like, oh, hey, you haven't caught anything? Have you tried the other side of the boat? Really? Like, like, you wouldn't have done that? Or it's like, have you tried this bait? No, I'm the fisherman. I know what's up. But that's what this guy said. And in my mind, I'm thinking, why would the disciples listen to a stranger? Right? They see a stranger on the side, and they're like, this guy's like, have you guys caught anything? Oh, what a jerk. No, buddy, we haven't caught anything. Have you tried the other side? Well, what, you, want, you want to throw over to the other side? Yeah, yeah, just throw it on the other side. We've already fished here. Just do it. All right. That's what they did. They threw their nets down on the other side, and boom, crazy amounts of fish. 153 fish, exactly. Now, do you guys ever wonder, have you guys in your small groups after we did this, after Pastor Eric preached on it, do you guys ever discuss why that number? Anybody? In your small groups? You guys, raise your hand if you did that's in your small group. Ask that question. I did. I could not think of a good reason. I looked up a ton of commentaries looking up why 153. I, I, I wanted to see something cool and mystical. I wanted to be like, if you add the number of disciples, multiply the times of fish times minus the, the days of the week, and you see God. You know, that's, that's I, wanted, I wanted it to be like something really cool, like a puzzle you could find, and I got nothing. But N.T. Wright wrote in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. 
And in that book, Wright makes a strong case, and other historians say so as well, that these narrative, these passages in Matthew, Luke, and John that talk about meeting with Jesus, with the risen Jesus, in no way fit the form of a typical myth or legend. It says when they brought in the fish, there were 153. Many people have said, well, it has to be symbolic. And this is a wonderful but made-up story, so whoever is making it up must have said 153 in order to be symbolic. But we've tried. People have been trying for centuries on this one, 12, 7, 10, 100. A lot of symbolic numbers, but nobody has ever found a way to make 153 a symbolic number. So people have said, well, maybe it was put there just to be realistic. But the problem with that theory is, and this is according to N.T. Wright, is that modern realistic fiction, where you create a fictional piece, but you put in little details to make it seem more realistic. Like, for example, um, I'm talking so about what I did yesterday, I put in, oh, but I drank coffee in the morning, or something like that, something, a little piece of like, information that makes it seem like your story is true. That kind of storytelling didn't happen to the last couple of hundred years. Back then, you would not put a detail like that in the narrative unless it was something that actually happened. See, guys, this is from eyewitness memory. This actually happened. There's no other reason to have 153 fish. If you're making it up, by the way, if you're going to make up the story, then when people jump out of the boat into the water to swim the shore, they don't put on a coat. If you're making up that story, you don't say Peter put on his outer garments back on and then jumped in the water. You take things off before you jump in the water. But it says Peter put on his coat before he jumped in the water. Because John, as he's remembering, he'd be like, why did he put on his coat and jump in the water? This is his eyewitness account. It doesn't make sense for this to be something fake and made up. If it was fake and made up, he wouldn't have put these types of information in there. And I love how the Bible is. Guys, can I tell you that there have been critical um, criticisms and literary critics upon the Bible for thousands, hundreds and thousands of years, and it still stands up today. The Bible is absolutely incredible. And I love it. I love little bits of pieces like this, and the only way it's possible for the Bible to stand up against all this and all this time is that because it was written by God. So Jesus has his fire and breakfast made ready for the disciples. Pastor Eric preached how this would have brought Peter back to the fire that he was standing around when he denied Jesus. In chapter 13 of John, Peter insists that at, he at least, when all the other disciples forsake Jesus, he goes, no, nah, not me. I'm the man, Peter. I got you, God. I got you, Jesus. I ain't going anywhere. He's going to remain loyal to Jesus. He won't let Jesus down no matter what. That's in chapter 13 of John. But then chapter 18, we see Peter trying and failing miserably. He follows Jesus, but when he gets confronted, it went horribly wrong. Three times he denies that he is one of Jesus' followers. And it wasn't even to like guards or soldiers. You know, it was like to a uh, working there. Like, hey, aren't you one of them? He's like, no, 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 not me. He wasn't even at this moment afraid for his life, but he said just recently, just five chapters earlier, I'll stand with you to death. But then he denies Jesus three times. And then, then the cock crows. One of my favorite paintings I've ever seen was this painting called The Denial of Peter by Carl Block. I'll put it up on the screen for you guys, or Nathan will, I won't. And I love this painting. There's Peter denying around a fire. There's a rooster right there. But my favorite thing that you can't really tell, it's hard to see from where you guys are sitting, but in the distance, that's Jesus back there. And there's Peter's face turned in shame, and there's Jesus kind of looking back at Peter. Now, this is an artist's kind of rendition. This is not how it probably looked in real life. He probably wasn't that close to Jesus. But I love this painting. I love this picture, and I love the anguish as Peter's turning and denying. 
I like the look on Jesus' face. If you can see it closely, actually, by this artist's interpretation, Jesus isn't one of anger. His look back isn't one of, of I hate you, Peter. It's almost a look of, not remorse, but just look like I'm here and I see you. Not in a judgmental way. I just love this, I love this painting. I don't remember where I first saw it. I think I was, I think I was in sophomore year AP European history <laughs> when I first saw this painting. And I remember it was just, it's something that moved me ever since that day. Peter has this image in his mind, I'm sure, as they're sitting around this campfire. Here's Jesus' campfire, fire again, where he denied him. Imagine his shame and anger. Angry at himself, shame for what he did. This is the bold Peter. This is the Peter who stepped out to walk on water with Jesus. This is the one that Jesus said, this is the rock. Not even the fact that Jesus is alive, honestly, could get rid of that hurt. As a matter of fact, the fact that Jesus is alive showed that he, his doubt was made manifest. And how could I doubt the God who's alive now? He needed something more. Nothing could, could heal him except the redeeming healing power of Jesus. Revisiting the past hurt and just having a meal together, that's what he's, heals Peter. The contrast in this chapter is between Peter's feeling like he needs to prove himself and Jesus' invitation to have breakfast with him. For Peter, his relationship to God has always been about working hard, proving himself, doing the best. He's the guy that says, I won't deny you, Jesus. I'm going to step out in the water for you, Jesus. I'm going to pull the fish in for you, Jesus. I'm going to swim the shore for you. Everything about his own striving, his own effort, his own ability. But Jesus is not asking Peter to prove anything. He doesn't even need Peter's fish. He prepared a table for Peter. Some of you guys are here today and you can't get over or let go of the mistakes that you've made in your past. You believe that no matter what, those mistakes define you and be, will be with you. Some of you guys are here and you think that all the stuff that you've done, all the decisions you've made, that's who you are and you don't know what to do because all you've done is strive to do good and to do good, but you can't be as good as you want to be. Can I tell you today that there is both forgiveness and redemption for you today with Jesus? Just like with Peter, you don't have to strive and exert to get this. Jesus provides all you need for healing today. Will you have breakfast with him? Will you sit with him? Will you allow his Holy Spirit to work on your heart and soul? Will you allow him to speak truth to those areas for you? It's, will you allow the God who provides fish in abundance to provide right now for you? Verse 15, I'll put it on the screen. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said the third time, do you love me? Peter was grieved. He said, I love you, Lord. Do you know everything? You know, and Jesus said, feed my sheep. I kind of rushed over that a little bit. Peter is saying, yes, Jesus, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus says to Peter again, do you love me? He says, yes, Jesus, I love you. Feed my sheep. Third time, Peter, do you love me? The gospel says that when Jesus asked him the third time, Peter became upset. Because he sees the corollary here between the number of times that Jesus is asking him this question of whether he loved him and the number of times he denied Jesus. Right? I mean, the whole thing is set up for this, right? You got the fire, the, the smell, you know, the correlation of the three times he denied and the three times Jesus asked. And here's Peter thinking, 
Is this, is this why you're doing this, Jesus? Are you, are you trying to embarrass me in front of the other disciples? Are you trying to put me down? Are you trying to make me feel terrible about myself? So here's Peter, after the second time, after the third time, he's like, he's angry. He's getting to the point, like, he's hurt. He's saying, Jesus, why are you asking me again? Why are you making this correlation? Why are you bringing back up the past mistake that I made? Jesus is showing tenderness. Jesus is trying to show Peter, who is a guy who always based his worth on performance, that his worth is not based on performance, but his worth is based on who Jesus is and that Jesus loves and forgives him. This is so important. Jesus is not being cruel. He's not being vindictive. He's not being mean to Peter. He's saying, Peter, let's look back. Let's understand this, that you're thinking that if you do right, if you work hard, if you're the most earnest, if you try the best, if you develop for yourself, then you're gonna get what you, you know, get what you deserve. And here you are, and you realize, hey, no matter how hard you tried, you still mess up. So let's go back to the point of your mess up. Let's relive that point again of your deepest regret and show you that, hey, not only do I know it, I know your worst mess up, I still love you and I still call you to purpose. Guys, can you, I just want you to hear this. Here's the deal. Most of us in our lives, in our cult, this culture that we live in, we believe that we need to work really hard, do really well, be perfect, and good things will happen to us. And we take that philosophy of life into our relationship with God. We, most of us think if we're just good enough and we try hard enough and we act well enough that we're gonna be good enough and God's gonna love us and accept us. Look how smart I am, look how good I try, look how hard I try, look how good I am. And there are moments though that happen in our lives where we're like, you mess up pretty bad. And you realize, man, what, how sinful am I? How, how messed up am I? But you try to ignore those times. You try to maybe cover it up with all the other good acts that you do. And here's Jesus saying, no, no, let's go back to those acts. Let's go back to those times where you really messed up. And you think that, God, why do you want to go back to the times where I messed up? That hurts my heart. I don't want to go back to the times where I really messed up and hurt your heart. Why would I go back and revisit the hard times? And Jesus said, because, guys, get this, in the hard times it reveals who you really are. And even get this even more, in the hard times says that I love you even in those times. Even when you mess up. And even when you mess up, I'm going to use that even for glory. Guys, we, so much of us in our kind of our philosophy of life of, of working hard, striving hard, we take this over to God and can I tell you, it's not about how hard you strive to know God, not about how good you are, not about how clean you look on a Sunday morning, not about how often you read the Bible. It's all about the finished work of Jesus Christ and that he chose you and he loves you. But we always fall back, don't we? We always fall back to Peter. My people... Well, first of all, I will say this. The, the main point of this text is not the usage of the different loves. You guys probably heard sermons on like, I phileo you, I agape you. Anybody heard this? Okay, I'm not trying to mock that. This is awesome messages. But the, I just like saying it though. I phileo you. Actually, the main point of this text, um, N.T. Wright, D.A. Carson, John Stott, all actually agree that the interchangeableness of phileo and agapeo here actually doesn't make much of a difference in the passage or text. And I was like, oh, really? Because I preached it the other way multiple times, just to let you know. And it could, don't get me wrong, if you've heard it preached any other different way, I'm not putting that down at all. But their, their point is, these scholars, and my point here, I believe, is what is important is the gospel message that is given here. Not the nuance between phileo and agapeo. My people, if the gospel has one agenda in your life, it is to convince you that your performance is not the basis of your acceptance before God. Can I say that again? 
Your performance is not the basis of your acceptance before God. And so God allows you to fail so that you can see that in his grace, not your righteousness, that is the basis of your acceptance. That's why he brings Peter back to the moment of his biggest failures. To show that he was accepted then. Not just when he walked on water. The biggest enemy to the gospel is your self-sufficiency. And some of you have, are full of it. <laughs> Because honestly, you're really good people and you're really successful. Can I just be honest with you? There's so much in most of our lives, especially being an American in this time and age, in this day and age in our culture, we have so much. You know, there is so much possible that every one of you guys can accomplish this and you can accomplish that and you don't have to worry. You don't worry, wake up every morning worrying about, do I have clean drinking water? You don't worry about every morning waking up and saying, do I have something to eat? You don't honestly worry about your health because you have great doctors and you know how to take care of yourself. And what happens is you develop a self-sufficiency that says, hey, I can just go to school and I can work really hard and I can do anything. Hey guys, that's wonderful, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to tell your kids, don't believe that kid, you can't do anything, you're terrible. No, I'm not saying that. I want you to tell your children, guys, work hard, you can accomplish so much. But guys, can we tell you that some of what that does, what that develops, is it develops in you a lie of self-sufficiency. A lie that says you can be God, you don't need God. You're God. I can't tell you, the, the older I get in life and the more Gina and I can put away in savings and the more we can control in our own lives, we have the ability to control safety and control housing and control this and success and all this kind of stuff, the harder and harder it becomes. The more anxiety can build up. Isn't that crazy? The more security I have, the more anxiety I have. How is that even possible? It happens because the more security I have often makes me feel more godlike, and the more godlike I feel when there are things that I can't control, it brings us more anxiety. Do you hear that? Self-sufficiency. Throughout the gospel, it is not, the sin, it is not sin necessarily that keeps people from Jesus, but self-righteousness. Gentiles do not believe because of unrighteousness, Jews because of self-righteousness. And the church ended up being filled with Gentiles because self-righteousness is one of the hardest sins to overcome. It's not our weakness that keeps us from being used by God. It is often our strengths. Do you hear that? Your strengths keep you from realizing how fragile your life is. Your gifts keep you from realizing how dependent you really are. And your self-righteousness above others from how desperately you need forgiveness. I love it in the midst of that, in the midst of this. This is when Jesus comes to Peter, and Peter who has all the gifts. I, can, I mean, Peter is the guy who has the gift to speak to thousands you know, after Pentecost comes. Peter is the guy who led the disciples. Peter is the guy that was bold and stepped on, out in faith onto the water. And Peter is this bold guy who proclaims the truth about who Jesus is. And he comes back and says, Peter, go back to the hard spot. Go back to when you were desperate. Go back to when you denied me and you were at your lowest point. What did you realize then? That if you can still love me at this point, that you really love me. It has nothing to do with how hard I try. Guys, for you, can you go back to your darkest spot? Go back to when you messed up the most. And people that still loved you then. I'll give you an example. <laughs> I still remember this. Um, my freshman year of college, I, had a, I was blessed, God was good. I got a full ride scholarship to University of Florida, so I'm at Florida, and this was, I thought life was awesome. 
I'm like, school is so easy. You don't have to really go to class. Really? Awesome. I can just play basketball all the time. This is great. Video games and basketball college is the best thing in the world. I loved it. And then I got my grades for the report semester. I'm like, oh no, I needed to maintain a 3.0 to keep my full scholarship. And I had an F in a class because I didn't go. And I was like, oh, this is not good. And I was broken because I've never had it. I was like, oh, this is going to be really bad. And I remember just going to my mom and, guys, I'm an Asian. Just going to let you know. I'm just throwing that out there in case you weren't aware of that. In Asian culture, a B plus is like, what did you just do to the household? You brought shame upon us, right? And so I had to go to my mom and say, hey, mom, dad, I'm on probation. And they're like, I, I mean, can I tell you? My dad's like, like five foot three and a half, five foot, you know, about that tall, maybe that tall. My mom's like less than five feet tall. But my dad weighs like 130 pounds. You know, like they're smaller people, in other words, to me. I've never felt so small. I was never felt so scared in my life. I was like, they're gonna kill me, you know? And I was like, oh no. And I just remember thinking after that, I mean, just, just being broken and didn't know, but yet, at the same time, the next day, the next day, the next day, knowing that they were with me, that they love me, that at, this, at that moment, I couldn't think of what worst thing I could have done, you know, that they forgive me. And it wasn't in the moments where I do really well as a son that counted. It was in the moments where I was terrible as a son that my mom showed grace and love to me, that showed me who she was. Does that make sense? Here's Jesus taking Peter to this hard spot and saying, know the gospel, Peter. So many of us are self-made people, capable, prepared, kind of finished first. The guys, that is spiritually dangerous. The place that we need to be is the place where Peter went, is we need to know how dependent we are, how needy we are. I like to think of King David. Here's King David. In my mind, he's just one of the coolest characters in the Bible. And King David is here, and he's also a warrior, but he's also a poet. You know, I think that's pretty sweet. You know, he's a warrior poet. He can slay giants and defeat people by the thousands. You know, he can fight with a sword and a spear, lead armies, just awesome dude. At the same time, he plays instruments and writes poetry. Just thought that was pretty cool, a cool contrast. But here's David, who's king. He's king, he, he, he's powerful, he has an incredible kingdom, he's powerful over all, amazing kingdom, building up wealth and all his subjects and everything, yet so many of his psalms start off with, hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. This powerful king starts off so many of his psalms, so much of his poetry being, help me, save me, cleanse me, a plea to saying, I'm in a state of need. That's where we need to be. We need to understand our desperate need for a good God. We need to understand that we are not God, that we don't control the universe. We can't control every bit of it, but we can trust in a God who is in control. He points Peter to his failure tenderly because he wants Peter to learn his need for grace. Jesus further heals Peter and restores him by sharing his mission with Peter. 
Jesus is sharing his own work, his own ministry with Peter. Jesus is, after all, the one who is called the good shepherd, right? He's the one that says, the sheep will know me, and I will know my sheep. Peter's called to the very task in Christ's ministry. How complete and total is Peter's healing? Peter's healing is that, yeah, I know you're in the midst of your sinfulness. I know you're your darkest place. I know you and you're full of a mess up, and I love you. And not only do I love you, I redeem you. Not only do I redeem you, I restore you. Not only do I restore you, I'm going to use you and call you to the very task, the very mission that I have. And he does that for Peter, and, he, and he'll do it for you. And not only does he know you, he loves you. And not only does he love you, he redeems and restores you. And not only does he redeem and restores you, he calls you to be a part of a mission that's bigger than you, to be a part of something that's crazier and more incredible than you can ever imagine, and says, come, be a part of, it, be a part of my own very mission. Let's change this world together. Come, do this with me. Verse 18. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. Which is, you don't, what does that mean? But then John helps out here. Says, this is said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. He's telling Peter that he would one day have the courage to die for him. To die possibly the worst way possible through crucifixion. Now, you might think this is bad news here, but it's, it's good news. He's telling Peter that one day Peter will make good on his promise to not deny Jesus. Even when people stretch out his hands, that he won't deny Jesus. I love the, the, the metaphor here of dying for, on a cross uses an odd image. He compares stretching out your hands to dying on a cross to being like a little child who stretched out his hands to his parents. When you were little, Peter, he said, you sprout your hands and people picked you up and they dressed you and took you around. That's how you're going to die. You're going to spread out your hands toward me, a picture of childlike dependency and intimacy and trust. But that childlike posture toward Jesus is exactly what would give Peter the strength to die like that. Peter had always thought his strength came from being the man who proved himself to be better than others. Jesus told him his strength would come from relating to him the way a child relates to a loving parent. Don't miss this. How does Jesus turn Peter, a guy who was so shaky, he denied him three times in one evening, to one who could endure crucifixion? By going to school? No. But through a deep and profound experience of grace. The most powerful force in a Christian's life is his experience of grace, period. By the time the Gospel of John was written, the, the prediction given here at the end had been fulfilled. Peter had glorified God by his martyrdom, probably in Rome, under the emperor Nero. His manner of death, being crucified upside down, is possible, as what legends say. We can't be exactly sure if that's what happened. What is undisputed is that Peter was faithful to the end, was able to endure because he didn't strive in his own might, but in his response to grace. There's a quote by D.A. Carson, and I'll put that on screen. Dave Carson says, Jesus' concluding words to Peter, follow me, may invite Peter for a private walk along the beach. But in the context of this book, they do more. They tie the step of discipleship to Jesus' initial calling, challenge Peter to consistent discipleship until martyrdom, he now faces comes due, and implicitly invite every waverer, every reader to the same steadfast pursuit of the risen Lord. This powerful word where he says, follow me even unto death. Verse 20, 
Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, and one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now, I love this about Peter. Peter's hilarious. I mean, he's, he's still, I love this, I love this about just the way God is, is that he, we, as much as like, we come to an incredible, profound understanding about God one second, the next second, we just be so stupid. We can also say the stupidest thing the next moment. Jesus had just told Peter, Peter, you're going to love me, you're going to lead for me, and then you're going to show the greatest courage for me by dying for me. And then Peter turns around, looks at John, and says, what about him? I mean, seriously, Peter? How do you, like, how do, you do that? How do you go there? I mean, like, you just heard this most profound, incredible, you, you've been redeemed, you've been restored, like, your brokenness of denying Jesus. Is, but now you've been told, man, not only are you going to, that's going to be redeemed and restored, you're going to be used for his purposes. You're going to feed his sheep. You're going to be a leader in the church, and you're going to do what you wanted to do. You're going to stay with him to the end. But then all of a sudden, you're like, well, what about him? It just doesn't go to show you that every one of us are broken and sinful human beings. And no matter how much we get and get from grace, we still have that sinful nature in us, right? We're still going to be like, well, what about that guy? Man, Peter. And I can just see it. I can just see Jesus rolling his eyes and be like, seriously, Peter? Stop comparing yourself to everybody else. Stop it. Don't compare yourself to everybody else. My grace, Peter, that's your prize. Rest. Rest. Rest in Jesus. Delight in him. Delight that you don't have to compare yourself to everybody else. Delight that you don't have to strive. Delight that you don't have to work so hard. Guys, guys, can I tell you this? Rest. You don't have to work so hard. You don't have to be on that hamster wheel. You don't have to do the rat race that this American Western life tells you to do. Rest. Because it's all about the work of Jesus. Rest. Because he knows you. You don't have to wear masks and try to pretend to be everything else. You don't have to put up airs all the time, be like, look how good I am, look how smart I am, look how much money I have, look how talented I am, look how nice my clothes are. Rest. You don't have to keep up with the Joneses. You don't have to do more than the other person. You don't have to say, well, what is Nathan doing? What is James doing? What is Gina doing? No, no, rest. Quit comparing yourself to everybody else. And just receive the rest that Jesus promises. Live in that. Can I tell you, guys, it is so much more freeing. It is so much more freeing. The enemy schemes to keep us from this kind of relationship with Jesus. He wants us to take back our failures. He wants us to go back fishing. He wants us to prove ourselves to Jesus. That is not what Jesus wants. The gospel invitation is to rest in him. Put your faith in the gospel, to rest in his love. The invitation is to have breakfast on the beach with Jesus, to walk and love and serve him out of love. Will you accept that gospel? Gospel of love and of rest. And once you do, will you learn that all your strivings amount to nothing because he's known you in your worst place and he still loves you. You don't have to earn his love. But we work and we serve because he loves. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. God, that we are far worse than we can even think and imagine that we are, but your love and your grace is far better, far bigger, and far more for us than we can ever hope for or imagine. 
So thank you for the work of Jesus, and may we learn to rest. Rest in the finished work of Jesus, not in our own ability, not in our own self-sufficiency. Will you show us that we are not God? And honestly, often God, this world does show us that, when it knocks us on our butt, when we, all the things that we can't control confronts us. It, we are seen over and over again, but when that happens, may we turn to you who is God. Forsake our self-sufficiency and rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.